And we did that because Colossians is filled with these rich descriptions of Jesus and what we have in Jesus if we are Christians. Colossians is a book that is dedicated to depicting the, the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ and the greatness of a life committed to following him. Along the way, we've seen stunning truth about our Lord. Look back at Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, this majestic description of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's Paul's introduction of Jesus. It's in the same Jesus that we learn in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, that, that God has hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we exhorted in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, to therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul tells us and teaches us of our union with this Christ if we believe in him, that we have been spiritually joined together with Jesus in an inseparable bond. So look at Colossians 2, beginning in verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision not made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been, noticed buried with him in baptism, in which you were also, noticed raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus has done has become ours by faith in him. And you might ask, how is this possible? How can we who were sinners, separated from God, become now spiritually one with the Son of God? It's because of what Jesus has done for us to, to reconcile us to God, to bring us back to God, and not just bring us back to God as separate entities, but to bring us into God and God into us. And so we read in Colossians 2, 13 to 15, look there, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ brings us to God by dying on the cross in our place. 
by nailing our sins to the cross and suffering the judgment we deserve, by defeating the devils of hell and robbing the grave and bringing us the power of a resurrected life and joining us to himself. This is how he does it. And so that everyone who receives Jesus as Lord by faith receives the benefits of his sacrifice on the cross and the hope of eternal life. Everyone who believes is transformed and will be transformed into the very glory of God himself. This is why Paul writes in Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's what Jesus has done for us. Beloved, if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. He's done it for you too. If you would repent of your sin and believe in him, all that Jesus is and all that Jesus does becomes yours by faith. By turning from sin and trusting in him, God works a great miracle. He raises you from the death of sin and joins you to his son to live the life of Christ in his glory forever. It's the best news in all the universe that God would make you his own. And not only that, make you one with himself. Believe this message. Trust this Jesus and you will not only be forgiven, but glorified together with Christ. And Christian, it's on this basis that we put to death our sin. That's Colossians 3, 5 to 11. It's on this basis that we grow in godliness, Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. It's on this basis that we run our households as husbands and wives and children, Colossians uh, uh, 3, 18 to 4, 1. It's on this basis that we speak to God in prayer and speak to men about God. Colossians 4, 2 to 6. The entire Christian life depends not on our strength and on our cunning, but on our union with Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of our life and our wisdom. So the question becomes, Given all that God has done for us in Christ, what then does God the Father expect us to do with all of this life and all of this wisdom? Well, according to Colossians 4, verses 10 to 18, our text for this morning, the Father expects us to form a partnership with one another, a partnership, a family business, to spread the gospel of Christ around the world. In fact, that's one way of understanding what a church is. A local church is a, a family partnership formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ for the purpose of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Colossians 4, 10 to 18 include Paul's final greetings to people at the church at Colossae. In verses 10 and 11, Paul sends greetings from three Jewish partners in the gospel. In verses 12 and 14, Paul sends greetings from three Gentile partners in the gospel. In verse 15, Paul adds his own personal word of greeting. And then in verses 16 to 17, we find his final exhortations, his final instructions to the churches at Colossae and Laodicea to exchange the letters and read the letters. And then in verse 18, Paul finally signs off. And here's the main idea. If you're thinking about this sermon, you want it in one sentence, here it is. Spreading the gospel is a multi-ethnic team sport. Spreading the gospel is a multi-ethnic team sport or 
partnership. And if you want the outline for the sermons, that this sermon, the, the partnership, this partnership in the gospel features five D's. Five D's. And don't get nervous. I'm not talking about y'all's report cards. Five, five D's. Number one, dedication. Dedication. Number two, disappointments. Disappointments. Number three, devotion. Personal devotion. Number four, diversity. We're going to camp out there for a little bit. And number five, direction. Direction. Dedication, disappointment, devotion, diversity, direction, all part of this gospel partnership that we are called to as a local church. Look with me at Colossians 4, verses 10 to 18. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The first D in this gospel partnership that we're called to and that Paul models here in his greetings is dedication. Dedication, particularly dedication to the task of spreading the gospel. We see that in Paul's description of several people sending their greetings. First, Aristarchus. Aristarchus was a dedicated servant on, on, God, on Paul's gospel team. We first learned of him in Acts 19, verse 29. Paul was preaching in Ephesus. And God had blessed the preaching of the word in Ephesus so powerfully that people were turning away from idolatry and turning to Jesus Christ. And there were some craftsmen there who made their living on selling idols. They were about to be put out of business. Because nobody was buying idols anymore. They were serving the true and living God who can't be made with hands. And so the craftsmen said, listen, man, we used to be flowing. We were stacking paper selling these idols. Now we can't sell them because of Paul and these rascals talking about this Jesus. And a riot breaks out in Ephesus. And two men are mentioned there as being dragged into the Colosseum, dragged into the uh, arena as the whole city was shouting, great is Artemis of Ephesus. Great is Artemis of Ephesus. And those two men were Gaius and Aristarchus. Described in Acts 19.29 as Macedonians. They were Jewish, Jewish people from Macedonia who were Paul's companions in travel. From that time on, Aristarchus went everywhere Paul went. And verse 10 tells us he even went to prison when Paul went to prison. The word that Paul uses there for fellow prisoner has the sense that Aristarchus probably volunteered to go into prison to be with Paul and to carry out his partnership with Paul. That was the measure of his dedication. But not only Aristarchus, but Epaphras. Notice there Epaphras is mentioned. 
He's a dedicated servant of the gospel on Paul team too. Paul, especially note Epaphras' dedication in prayer. See there in verse 12? Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Herapolis. Every team needs some prayer warriors. Every team needs people dedicated to the hard work of prayer and gospel ministry. According to Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, it's very likely that it was Epaphras who took the gospel to Colossae. Because in verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, you learned the gospel from Epaphras. And he commends him there as a faithful worker. And it's probably Epaphras who's come from Colossae across Asia and across Europe to Rome and told Paul about what's going on in Colossae because Paul had never been there before. He's, he's heard about them from this man. It's all the way in Rome, the other side of the empire. He is fighting in prayer for their full maturity and assurance in the faith. That's dedication. They were not out of sight, out of mind. They were out of sight, but in his prayers. Or take justice. Justice was a dedicated servant of the gospel too. There are three different men in the New Testament with this name. This is the only time that this justice is mentioned in the Bible. All we know about him is what's said right here. Jesus, who is called Justice. Now, in the first century, Jesus was a common name among Jewish people. That didn't change until the second century when there began to be real sharp strife between Jews and Christians, and separation between uh, those religious communities. And I suspect that this Jesus thought it better to go by justice. I mean... If your whole community worships somebody named Jesus, you probably don't want to show up introducing yourself with, hi, I'm Jesus. Perhaps we should infer an appropriate humility from the fact that he's called justice instead. And that's a kind of dedication too. Whatever it takes in the form of volunteer imprisonment, anonymity and name changes, or hard work in prayer, no gospel partnership goes forward, no gospel partnership thrives without dedication to the task. So church, we must remain dedicated to the call the Lord has placed on our lives as a family to spread the gospel together. We have to renew our efforts every day, each day, so that in the long accumulation of days, we will be found faithful. See, that's the thing about dedication. That's the thing about success. Dedication and success are so daily. They are so everyday, quiet habits played out over the long march of time. Daily, Aristarchus was with Paul even in prison. Daily, Epaphras worked and prayed for the church on his knees. Daily, this Jesus accepted the name Justice and served the team. Dedication comes through dailiness, beloved. Never despise dailiness and its small things. So, are we dedicated to our family partnership in spreading the gospel? Does it show daily in our prayers and our work? 
Well, not only is there this kind of dedication, but in gospel partnerships, you will also have your share of disappointments. We must be prepared to face them. Mark is mentioned here. See it there in verse 10? Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. If you're familiar with the book of Acts and the early days of Paul's missionary work with Barnabas, then you no doubt know that they were the strongest gospel duo in the Bible. Barnabas and Paul were killing it. They were going from city to city, preaching the gospel, seeing miracles, birthing churches. God's hand of blessing accompanied their ministry. And they worked together until Acts 13 This young man named Mark, cousin to Barnabas, out of the blue decided he wasn't going to go on with them in the gospel mission, but went back to Jerusalem. We're not really sure what happened there, what prompted that, but then we come down to Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41, and Paul wants to go back on the way that they had come to strengthen the churches. And he and Barnabas were kind of agreed about doing that. And Barnabas said, yo, let me call Mark, and we'll get Mark to go with us. And Paul said, nah, dog. He left us hanging. I'm not going with Mark. No, no. And Barnabas, who had strong gifts of encouragement, was like, oh, come on, Paul. The Bible says a sharp contention arose between them. In the Greek, a paroxysm, I mean a violent tearing apart, happened between Paul and his best friend Barnabas over this man Mark who had been a disappointment to Paul. See, John Mark wasn't like Aristarchus who faced a riot and then traveled everywhere Paul went. Mark seemed weak in comparison and had failed the team, but but that was 15 years ago. Now, near the end of his life in ministry, Paul looks at Mark and says, he's useful for me. In the ministry. Paul's glad to have him. There have been some instructions sent ahead of Mark so that the Colossians will receive his ministry and benefit from him. And then you see the name Demas. Notice him there? He's just mentioned. Mark's not the only disappointing figure in this list. Demas was also a part of the partnership to spread the gospel with Paul. He shows up in a lot of places and references in Paul's letters. John Mark started poorly and finished well. Demas was the opposite. He started well and failed to finish. Last thing we read of Demas is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes these sad words. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What sadness must have been in the apostle's heart to write those words. What a, what a blow it must have been to have one that traveled with you, preaching with you, serving with you, facing dangers with you, turn back to the world and desert the team. Let us take note of three things, especially to all of you who wish to be in gospel ministry in some form. First, we cannot take for granted that we will finish our race. We must persevere until the end. We will not coast into heaven. The righteous take it by force. We must press into heaven. We must stay to the narrow way. The broad path leads to destruction. Second, 
We must recognize that not everyone who starts the race with us will finish with us. Disappointments in the ministry, I wish they were rare, but they are plentiful. And disappointments in the church are part of the Christian life. There's no way to avoid disappointments unless you completely avoid people. And then you are the disappointment. Third, we may have to wait a long while before disappointments are healed. There's 15 years between what we saw in the book of Acts, Acts 13 and Acts 15, when Mark bailed and when Paul writes this letter. Some things, like deep disappointments, take time to heal. And try as we might, we cannot rush them. We must acquire that patient waiting upon God to do in hearts what we cannot. We need to know these things as a church, beloved, especially, again, all of you who wish to be in the ministry in some way. The, the critical thing is handling disappointments with gospel grace. The difference between Mark and Demas is apparently Mark repented and Paul forgave. Even the pain of having someone desert you while you are in the trenches of spiritual warfare, even that pain can be healed by the grace of repentance and forgiveness. Because of the gospel, not every desertion is final, beloved. Some people come back. And so we have to do this work while taking the long view. We have to suffer disappointment without giving up. Our partnership must include, in the terms and conditions of reconciliation, patience, prayerfulness, and waiting especially when we're hurt. God has given us what we need in Jesus to be able to do that. For our partnership to be a treasure in Christ, we need dedication to the task, and we need to know how to handle disappointments. But number three, we also need devotion, personal devotion to one another. This is what we see in verse 14 where Paul mentions Luke, the beloved physician. Luke was a long-term member of Paul's team. Luke was not only a doctor on the team, but also the team historian. It's this same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, uh, those early histories of, of early Christianity. And it's the same Luke who wrote those documents probably as a legal brief in Paul's defense in Rome. Luke seemed to always be by Paul's side. He was devoted to Paul. Think about how rare a physician might have been in the ancient world and how lucrative a medical career he might have had. But Luke gave that up to help and to attend to the Apostle Paul. Paul probably kept Luke pretty busy, too. Think of how many physical needs the Apostle Paul had. He had been shipwrecked. Three times he had been whipped with 39 lashes by his Jewish opponents. Mobs had beaten him and drug him out of cities and left him for dead, and he crawled back into the city and preached the gospel some more. Other mobs showed up to kill him, and his friends had to lower him over the city wall in a basket. He was often in prison, which is not, as it is in our day, three hots in a cot. It was a deep, dark hole, and you had to fend for yourself. And there was Luke, attending to him. Attending to him with his eye problems, 
maybe eye problems that he had gotten on the road to Damascus when he saw Christ for the first time in blazing glory and scales that had blinded him. There was Luke right there with him. Through it all, good old Dr. Luke, committed to his patient. And in all our struggles today with health care, it sure would be nice if every church had their own Dr. Luke. <laughs> what I simply wish to highlight here is that gospel partnerships are best formed and enjoyed where there is genuine personal devotion in the team. The, par the partnership is not a contract or a business transaction. It is a family business. It is a mom and pop shop. It is brothers and sisters in arms together. And you will know a healthy gospel partnership when you see one. It will be focused on the task of spreading the gospel with all the warmth of friendship and family. Devotion. And beloved, that's rare to find and harder to maintain than you might think. In all the gospel partnerships and elder teams I've known, I've only known a couple where the teams have been together for 20 or 30 years. I think of David Horner, who many of you won't know, pastor of Providence Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, pastor there as the founding church planting pastor for about 35 years. And I think of George Tashir, his pastor of missions, served with him that entire time, their devoted friendship to each other. Or I think of Todd Wagner of Watermark Church in Dallas, Texas. He's been with most of his team for over 20 years. First met them in Israel. He's just taking his team to Israel to see the Holy Land. There may be one or two other examples that skip my mind right now, but there, there aren't many. This is a precious blessing. More, more common in ministry and in the Christian life sometimes is loneliness. Surveys report that 75% of pastors say they, they don't have a friend in their congregation. Wives of pastors report a similar level of friendlessness. Now, Christy and I praise God, that's not our experience at ARC. Y'all at the house all the time, and we love it. But I well remember praying prayerful tears that the Lord would send me a bosom friend, a gospel partner in my previous ministry. But that's why I'm jealous and prayerful for the sweetness we enjoy in our eldership. Such friendship and sweetness in the midst of hard labor doesn't come easily. Such devotion is rare. It ought to be prayed for and it requires careful cultivation. And beloved, not all leaving, just to be clear here, not all leaving is because of disappointment. Some, like Jeremy, will continue to partnership with another team to spread the gospel elsewhere in the city. And one of the things that I want to encourage us to pray faithfully, even daily, for Jeremy, is that the Lord would raise up other pastors on the team, that he might not be alone, and that he might have a beloved physician like Luke. Pray preemptively against loneliness and isolation and the hardship that comes from that. If you've known that in your own life, magnified by a pastor, surrounded by people with nobody to share with. Pray that he would be comforted by friendship, that he would be comforted by devoted fellow servants, just as Paul found himself. So, we must, number one, be dedicated. We must, number two, know how to deal with disappointments. 
We must, number three, be devoted to one another. Number four, we should have diversity. We'll camp out here for a little while. See, see the diversity of Paul's team in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 mentions Paul's Jewish partners. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Verse 13, Paul says that Epaphras, though, is one of you, meaning that Epaphras was a Colossian, a Gentile. That was, you remember from last week, also how Paul described Onesimus as one of you, as a Colossian, a Gentile. So Paul had on his team both Jew and Gentile in Christ. Wasn't simply that Paul became all things to all men, as he says in 1 Corinthians 9, but it was also the case that Paul involved all people to do all things. A healthy gospel partnership would have some measure of class, ethnic, and cultural diversity. If it doesn't, we have reason to suspect something is sick. Because Christ has come into the world to gather for himself a people of every tribe and every nation and every language. Some of you know I often have the privilege of speaking at pastors conferences and things of that sort. And I'm often asked the question, what can we do to diversify our church? So people are seeing the power and the promise of diversity and they're wondering how to achieve it. My new answer, based on Paul's life and teaching in this section, is this. If we want genuine diversity, we will only attain it in the radical sacrifice of personal privilege in order to move toward the full embrace and equality of the most spiritually alienated people among us. Let me restate it. If we want genuine diversity... We will only attain it in radical sacrifice of personal privilege in order to move toward the full embrace and equality in the body of Christ of the most spiritually alienated people among us. Now let me unpack that from this text. You say, Pastor, I don't see that. Look with me at verse 12. Paul writes there of his three Jewish companions, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers, and they have been a comfort to me. Of all of Israel and of all the Jewish Christians, from all the churches that Paul had known all over the Roman Empire, three are with him. Just three. Now, in that sentence, it's so much radical sacrifice and cost. And what I want to do is unpack that really quickly from other parts of Scripture referring to Paul's life. Think about Paul's life before he was a Christian. You see it described in Philippians 3, verses 2 to 10. You can turn there if you want, or you can look at it later. Paul says there, regarding his life before Christ, that he had, in summary, been a highly privileged religious leader. He says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. In terms of zeal, he said he excelled all of his peers. In terms of the law, he said, I was blameless before God and the law. He was Jewish man of Jewish man. 
He even received orders from the high priest himself to persecute the church. So he was, he was the muscle, if you will, uh, in the Jewish religious movement. He had tremendous privilege inside the covenant community of God's people. But this is what he learned when he came to Christ. That you got to give all of that up to follow Jesus. So when you read Philippians chapter 3 and Paul stacks up all of that tremendous privilege and, and power and notoriety that he had as a, as a faithful Jewish person, he says, listen, I count all that as loss. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, all of that to me is rubbish. Now, what you must understand is he's not saying it was not a loss. Oh, he felt that loss. Sinclair Ferguson commented on Colossians 4 verse 12 says probably what Paul has in mind here is the fact that in following Christ, his family disowned him. And all who knew him and loved him disowned him. No, that was a loss. But that loss, next to the greatness of knowing Jesus, Paul said, all day, every day, I'm choosing Jesus. Now, this is the remarkable thing. Paul didn't only suffer that loss because he followed Jesus. Paul also suffered that loss because he understood something about Jesus' body, about Jesus' church. In other words, he understood this. You've got to hug the margins if you want to diversify the center. If the people in the middle care nothing about the people on the edges, then you're never going to be inclusive. And if the people in the middle with all of the access and the privilege and the power and the status care more about that access and privilege and power and the status, guess who they're not going to hug? People who don't have access, privilege, power, and status. So consider Paul and the Gentiles, what we know about him and people outside of Israel. For the Gentiles, the nations were the spiritually most alienated people in Paul's day. From a religious perspective, from a biblical perspective, the, the center of privilege and power and the center of religious access was, was Israel and God's covenant people Israel. And the first big question that the Jews have to decide is, what are we going to do about these Gentiles who claim to believe in our Messiah? They had whole councils on that question. And you remember Paul. Paul says, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. And, and Paul went and preached the, the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul included, as we see in Colossians 4, the Gentiles in the church and in the work of the ministry. And, and when Paul in Galatians chapter 2 goes up to meet with Peter and James and John, he says, whoever else, they don't make no difference to me who they were. He goes and defends not only the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church, but at great cost to himself and great labor, he defends the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church as Gentiles not as Jews. He rejects his anti-gospel, the notion that, that Gentile people have to first be circumcised and take on a kind of Jewishness before they can then be Christian. You remember, he rebukes Peter to his face for Peter's hypocrisy, for when there were no Jews around, Peter hang out with the Gentiles. When the Jewish boys come to town, Jew, Jew, Peter act like he ain't never had no pork chop sandwich, right? And Paul says, I, 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 I rejected him, I, 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 I rebuked him to his face because his conduct was not in keeping with the gospel. Galatians 2.14. 
So you see, Paul also faced alienation in his country, among his countrymen, because he not only gave up his privilege to follow Jesus, which could have been a cozy little sect inside of Judaism, but he also used his privilege to embrace the spiritually marginalized and alienated. And the cost of that was to be alone among his countrymen. The reward of that was to have a church family made up of every nation, tribe, and language. So diversity requires those who are privileged surrendering their privilege, using their privilege to embrace and to gather and to include as equals, genuine equals, in all of the ministry, those who exist on the spiritual margins of the church and the gospel. So how does this apply to us? So I was meditating on this this weekend on a couple of conversations with some of you. My mind got clearer and clearer on some of the costly calling we'll face to live, to live out a gospel partnership. In our context, in the United States, the, re- the privileged religious group is or has been, historically, evangelicals. For the most part, beloved, I think it's fair to say that evangelicals coddle their privilege rather than use it or lay it down for others. And this is why some of the most prominent evangelicals in the Southern Baptist Convention went hard after fellow evangelical leader Russ Moore in the aftermath of the election. They stated explicitly that what they feared in Russ's prophetic leadership on everything from police brutality to racial reconciliation to a host of other things, they stated explicitly that what they feared was that they would then lose access to the White House and to power and privilege. They didn't fear being found unfaithful. They feared not being found at the table. And now that some of these prominent evangelicals imagine themselves to have power and privilege and access, some are forthrightly saying, in answer to why the Evangelical Advisory Council hasn't disbanded when business groups and others have, they're just saying, point blankly, I'm not going to give up this access, this privilege, this power. It's the tendency of the spiritually advantaged to use that advantage for themselves and for people like them. For the sake of Jesus Christ and his church, privileged evangelicals will have to surrender the idols of power and privilege or they will never love their marginalized brothers and sisters. They'll never love their neighbors when it would cost them because they love their privilege too much. They will ignore the pleas of fellow Christians, fellow Christians, beloved, who fear that their choices, choices made by privileged Christians, will in the end harm and destroy Christian brothers on the margins. See, until evangelicals relinquish their strong clutch on privilege, they will put politics over the family of God, and that won't change until or unless the spiritually marginalized are embraced. And beloved, I believe, I am convinced, the Father wants us prepared to count and pay the cost of being almost alone in our natural communities in order to be completely together in the church. And so the question for us this morning is, 
Who are the spiritually most alienated people among us? Who are the spiritually most alienated people in Bible-believing churches? I think it would have to be persons in poverty and African-American women. Let me unpack this. James writes chapter 2 of his letter precisely because the Christian church of James' day loved rich people and gave them the best seats and disdained poor people and squeezed them to the margins. I mean, think about that. A whole chapter in God's Word doing nothing but putting the finger of God in the eye of His church saying, if you show partiality and show favoritism, you are not acting like God your Father. For with God there is no partiality. The whole chapter written there, and we could go to other texts in the Bible as well, but the whole chapter there written in James 2 designed to help us see that in the body of Christ, poor and affluent, as you hear stereotypically said or, or, or clichédly said, are, are standing at level ground at the foot of the cross. If that's true, we are all standing on level ground at the foot of the cross, and what we would expect is that there would be something that looks like both the abolition of class distinction and the joyful sharing of resources among all God's people. So Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse 11, here there is neither what? Jew nor Gentile, Scythian, barbarian, what? Slave nor free. But we're all in Christ. And when you look at the history of the early church, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, what do you see there? The kind of radical generosity where in the community of God's people, they have all things in common so that no man had need. I suspect God recorded that bit of church history so that the centuries of church history later might not forget that that's what it looks like to live as God's partnership, as God's family. And if we did, we might be convicted. And if we're not convicted, we might be challenged to think that to that extent we may be loving our privilege and resources and accesses more than we're loving our brothers and sisters in the Lord. I think if you went into most evangelical churches today, the people you're most likely not to see or to see in the back or on the side and on the margins are poor people. Because like it or not, most of evangelical religion has simply become a softer version of the prosperity gospel. No, we're not Creflo. We're not T.D. Jakes. We're not Joel Osteen or whoever else you associate with the prosperity gospel. But so much of our movement states by example or by word to be a good Christian you effectively need to be middle class or upper middle class and so many of our leadership tables are reserved not for the Onesimuses of the world guys who were slaves but they're reserved only for the Dr. Lutz black women Black women live in the spiritual margins of evangelical churches, and I'm talking about evangelical churches because in many respects we are one, though I have more and more disdain for the title. 
Black women live in the spiritual margins even though they make up most of our churches, built most of our churches, run most of our churches. Most of our churches be closed without black women. But listen, even black men who catch it in a broader world have more privilege and position inside the church than black women. And black men can be as guilty as anyone of coddling their privilege in sacred spaces. And meanwhile, black women eke out a spiritual existence on the margins of churches that, as I said, they help fund, they help build, and they help run. I was listening to ESPN on yesterday, the sports radio show called The Trifecta. I don't know if you listen to that. It's three women who host the show. They were discussing the number of women abused by R. Kelly and by Floyd Mayweather. And they were asking the question, why are these women not protected by our society? And one of them paraphrased a reporter covering R. Kelly. The reporter basically said that society does not care about young black women and the lack of protection reflects this lack of value assigned to them. And beloved, I just want to ask you the question this morning as to whether or not churches assign any more value to black women than the broader society. Whether that's evident, whether that's reflected. I suspect that this is why men, so many men in evangelical churches, give little to no attention to godly black women among them. They pass over these sisters. I'm talking about white men, I'm talking about Asian men, I'm talking about black men too. They pass over these sisters. It's a travesty and a sorrowful thing. And it cannot be all checked by referring to preference. For beloved, our preferences are touched by our biases and our prejudices. So our preferences need to be interrogated, especially when we're rejecting women with, with what God calls unfading beauty, which is precious in his sight. What's really going on there? Is it not the infection of a prejudice inherited from a world that disdains blackness and black women? Chris and I sat once with a young African-American man over dinner who shall remain nameless to protect the guilty. He shared with us his desire to marry and to have a family. Then his pastor put him on blast, kind of called him out, made the young man share very reluctantly and sheepishly that his preference was for white women. I explored with him what he meant by preference. He didn't have any definition other than he just wasn't going to marry a black woman and he preferred white women. So I asked him a couple more questions. I said, is your mama black? He said, yeah. I said, you got any sisters? He said, yeah. I said, your sister's black? He said, yeah. I said, well, what's wrong with your mama and your sisters that you can't marry a black woman? Not that you must, but that you rule it out categorically. What's going on in your heart? He didn't have an answer, but the answer was all in the silence, wasn't it? And beloved, this young man is not alone. He's just an illustration of how as Christians, even as Christians, we don't work against our preferences to actively renew our minds and embrace the margins. And if we don't do that, we alienate rather than diversify. 
I mean, to have the kind of diversity, true diversity that's reflected in Paul's partnership here in the ministry, we must embrace the spiritually alienated, which means embracing the poor among us and, to be more particular, black women among us. Now, praise God for the grace that's among us where we see this in some measure. This is not a the, fi- the sky is falling sermon. It's not meant to be that kind of commentary, even as it's meant to be sober. Think of what we heard this morning from Carly. This young white woman could have kept on living her little life wherever she was from, back in her hometown, and did all the things that evangelical Christianity would expect with no problem whatsoever. But wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus takes her to Kenya. And not to the palaces in Kenya, but to the dumps and to the homeless and to the broken. Counting it as no sacrifice whatsoever, like Paul, but counting it a great joy and a great privilege to speak of Jesus to people that Jesus loves. Praise God. That's a Pauline kind of attitude. More than that, that's a gospel attitude. For, for Christ does what? Though he was equal with God, with God, he did not consider it equality. What? He didn't think robbery would be considered equal with God. But what? He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. And he took upon himself the form of a servant. And he came into the world and he died in the place of those very servants, was crucified, buried, and resurrected. The gospel moves from the infinitely great Christ to the broken and soiled sinful human. And so those who are gospel people should be making those same kinds of movements away from glory to what the world considers grime. But beloved, you find all the diamonds in coal. That's where we're meant to go. Or, or think of Joanna Schmucker. You said Joanna? Joanna Schmucker is 12. Joanna Schmucker moved to Southeast D.C. Little white girl, little blonde white girl. Moved to Southeast D.C. You said, but her family came. Yeah, she didn't have no choice. But she has a choice as to whether or not she does that with a joyful heart. And whenever you see Joanna, she's serving. Whether it's reading scripture for us, or if you go to the Schmuckers, baking cookies for you. Wherever you see Joanna, she's attempting to pay the cost that comes to her 12-year-old, making that kind of transition. So long Joanna didn't know the difference between uh, fireworks and gunshots. And young Joanna grew up in a home pretty much where gunshots were never heard. Now she's growing up in a neighborhood where they're heard quite frequently. And rather give in to her fear, she's learning with her parents' help to process her fear. All for the sake of the gospel. So we put the schmuckers in that category. And, and others of you who have, who have left and are leaving more comfortable situations in life for the sake of the gospel and a diverse bride to come here and labor with us to make disciples from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. And many more of you will be called, many more of us will be called to make this kind of radical sacrifice to include people on the margins 
and many more of us will have awakening moments, I pray, where we recognize where we need to do more of that. Let me give you just one of mine, a simple one. We were meeting at Orr Elementary School. There was a man who was attending our services. If I called your name, you would know him. He had been on the streets, uh, homeless for many years, and an alcoholic, and, and he smelled like he was an alcoholic on the streets. And I remember coming into the services one morning as we were setting up, and I saw uh, my dear sister, uh, Jordan. Jordan's just happy, you know, sometimes I, where's Jordan? Is Jordan here? Sometimes I wonder if, if Jordan really knows what's going on around her. She's so happy, right? It's just, Jordan's just happy, man, and loves life. And um, I see this man, and I see Jordan. Jordan's coming to him closer, uh, gets to him before I do. And Jordan says, hey, and, and names his name. And, and again, now he's, he's, he's smelling and all those things. She gave him the fullest, tightest hug. And brought her into himself and herself and, and greeted him. And in that moment, I realized that had Jordan not been in front of me, I would have had an extended arm and shook his hand at some distance rather than embrace him in that way. So Jordan for me is a picture of that kind of radical sacrifice that embraces and treats as equal the marginalized. The question for us, church, is are we ready for that? The answer must be yes. So the question really is, will we do that? Will we be those kinds of Christians? Now, if that comes to you and you have to make some sacrifice, and we're going to be finished in just a minute, beloved. And you have to make some sacrifice, I want you to remember this sermon and I want you to remember Paul. Because there will be a time when God places you in a situation where you will have to choose between your kinsmen according to the flesh or your economic status or just your comfort. You have to choose between that and your black brother or sister in Christ, your brown or Hispanic brother or sister in Christ or uh, some poor person in Christ. And, and when that time comes and you have to make that choice, you're going to have to give up maybe long-held political views and beliefs. You're going to have to give up a, a long-settled sense of identity. Uh, and you're going to have to die to yourself in order to embrace the quote-unquote other. And when that happens, you may feel alone, like Paul, with only a couple of other people by your side and no one there thanking you and making a big whoop about it. When that time comes, remember Paul in this sermon and reason like Paul, remember what Paul said, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, this loneliness, this isolation, this ridicule, this misunderstanding is nothing. You, you count it all as dung, as rubbish, as lost next to Christ and doing his will to love black and brown neighbors, to love poor neighbors, to love addicted neighbors, to love lost neighbors deeply from the heart. Count everything else as loss. Think about what I'm saying right now about this cause. Has anyone ever told you that it would take this much sacrifice of yourself, the very, the very, how you even think about yourself, to genuinely follow Jesus in loving people. 
If not, beloved, that's the telltale indication that a considerable part of your Christian life and my Christian life has been lived in privilege. Because it's a basic command in God's word. Which brings us to our final D. Direction. Direction. For this partnership to work, we've got to have some direction, some spiritual direction. And that's what Paul alludes to in the conclusion of the letter, verses 16 to 18. He basically says, hey, take this letter, read it to the whole church. And then when you've done that, pass it along to Laodicea. And I've written a a letter to Laodicea. Get that letter and read it. Now, we don't have the letter to the Laodiceans, but we do have what Paul has said here in Colossians, in the scripture. Uh, And and notice now, that, that very... The sort of source of direction is God's word. It's not the pastor's vision, right? It's not what the gurus are writing about in their books. It's not what we see on television. So much of Christianity on television is just fake. Just plain fake. It ain't worth watching. It ain't worth intaking, right? Our direction comes from the book, from the Bible. This is where God speaks, right? And so Paul is saying to them in so many words, here's your direction. Do what I've written here. And we're just like that Colossian church receiving from Paul divinely inspired instruction from God. And so we ought to be committed to this book. But notice something else. Now, the Lord intends us to take our directions from this book. And part of what he says is, do what I told you to do. So see there, Archippus mentioned there in verse 17. I mean, he just put Archippus business all out in the street. He said, and tell Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, I, I feel sorry for that, brother, right? Because John going to call him and say, hey, look, I need, I need children's ministry volunteers. And he going to mumble something, some excuse. He said, now, you know what Paul said. See that you fulfill the ministry, right? And, and Lloyd going to call him about the sound team. Archippus ain't going to be able to get out of any ministry in the church for the rest of his life. But what's said of Archippus applies to us too, doesn't it? That we are to make it our business to see that we do what God has given each of us to do. To love our wives, to love our husbands, to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. To pray earnestly without ceasing. To speak to others, to give them a reason for the hope that is within us. To proclaim Christ until he comes. To suffer if he requires. God has called us all into this ministry. And he has left us here with this direction. Fulfill it. Do and complete what you are called to do. This would be as good a place as any to quote Yoda. Do not try. Do. (laughs) Is that your resolve? Some of y'all know Yoda. Some of y'all know Yoda. Is that your resolve? Are you committed to following the path the Lord Jesus has commanded you to walk? I pray that you are. I pray that I am. I pray that together as one family partnership formed by the gospel to spread the gospel, we will see the glory of the Lord fill our own hearts and fill our communities. May it be so. May we have the same hope and may we do the same work. Let's pray together.